Chapter Eleven of the Deerslayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter Eleven. The great King of Kings hath in the table of his law commanded that thou shalt do no murder. Take heed, for he holds vengeance in his hand to hurl upon their heads that break his law. Richard the Third, Act One, Scene Four, Lines one ninety five to one ninety seven, and one ninety nine to two hundred. That the party to which Hist compulsorily belonged was not one that was regularly on the war path was evident by the presence of females. It was a small fragment of a tribe that had been hunting and fishing within the English limits, where it was found by the commencement of hostilities, and after passing the winter and spring by living on what was strictly the property of its enemies, it chose to strike a hostile blow before it finally retired. There was also deep Indian sagacity in the manoeuvre which had led them so far into the territory of their foes. When the runner arrived who announced the breaking out of hostilities between the English and French, a struggle that was certain to carry with it all the tribes that dwelt within the influence of the respective belligerents, this particular party of the Iroquois were posted on the shores of the Oneida, a lake that lies some fifty miles nearer to their own frontier than that which is the scene of our tale. To have fled in a direct line for the Canadas would have exposed them to the dangers of a direct pursuit and the chiefs had determined to adopt the expedient of penetrating deeper into a region that had now become dangerous, in the hope of being able to retire in the rear of their pursuers, instead of having them on their trail. The presence of the women had induced the attempt at this ruse, the strength of these feebler members of the party being unequal to the effort of escaping from the pursuit of warriors. When the reader remembers the vast extent of the American wilderness at that early day, he will perceive that it was possible for even a tribe to remain months undiscovered in particular portions of it, nor was the danger of encountering a foe, the usual precautions being observed, as great in the woods as it is on the high seas in a time of active warfare. The encampment being temporary, it offered to the eye no more than the rude protection of a bivouac relieved in some slight degree by the ingenious expedients which suggested themselves to the readiness of those who passed their lives amid similar scenes. One fire that had been kindled against the roots of a living oak sufficed for the whole party, the weather being too mild to require it for any purpose but cooking. Scattered around this centre of attraction were some fifteen or twenty low huts, or perhaps kennels would be a better word, into which their different owners crept at night and which were also intended to meet the exigencies of a storm. These little huts were made of the branches of trees, put together with some ingenuity, and they were uniformly topped with bark that had been stripped from fallen trees, of which every virgin forest possesses hundreds, in all stages of decay. Of furniture they had next to none. Cooking utensils of the simplest sort were lying near the fire. A few articles of clothing were to be seen in or around the huts rifles, horns, and pouches leaned against the trees, or were suspended from the lower branches, and the carcasses of two or three deer were stretched to view on the same natural shambles. As the encampment was in the midst of a dense wood, the eye could not take in its tout ensemble at a glance, 
but hut after hut started out of the gloomy picture as one gazed about him in quest of objects. There was no centre, unless the fire might be so considered, no open area where the possessors of this rude village might congregate, but all was dark, covert, and cunning, like its owners. A few children strayed from hut to hut, giving the spot a little of the air of domestic life, and the suppressed laugh and low voices of the women occasionally broke in upon the deep stillness of the sombre forest. As for the men, they either ate, slept, or examined their arms. They conversed but little, and then usually apart or in groups withdrawn from the females, whilst an air of untiring innate watchfulness and apprehension of danger seemed to be blended even with their slumbers. As the two girls came near the encampment, Hetty uttered a slight exclamation on catching a view of the person of her father. He was seated on the ground with his back to a tree and Hurry stood near him indolently whittling a twig. Apparently they were as much at liberty as any others in or about the camp, and one unaccustomed to Indian usages would have mistaken them for visitors, instead of supposing them to be captives. Watawa led her new friend quite near them, and then modestly withdrew, that her own presence might be no restraint on her feelings. But Hetty was not sufficiently familiar with caresses or outward demonstrations of fondness to indulge in any outbreaking of feeling. She merely approached and stood at her father's side without speaking, resembling a silent statue of filial affection. The old man expressed neither alarm nor surprise at her sudden appearance. In these particulars he had caught the stoicism of the Indians, well knowing that there was no more certain mode of securing their respect than by imitating their self-command nor did the savages themselves betray the least sign of surprise at this sudden appearance of a stranger among them. In a word, this arrival produced much less visible sensation, though occurring under circumstances so peculiar than would be seen in a village of higher pretensions to civilization, did an ordinary traveller drive up to the door of its principal inn. Still a few warriors collected and it was evident by the manner in which they glanced at Hetty as they conversed together, that she was the subject of their discourse, and probable that the reasons of her unlooked-for appearance were matters of discussion. This phlegm of manner is characteristic of the North American Indian, some say of his white successor also, but, in this case, much should be attributed to the peculiar situation in which the party was placed. The force in the ark, the presence of Chingachgook excepted, was well known, no tribe or body of troops was believed to be near, and vigilant eyes were posted round the entire lake, watching day and night the slightest movement of those whom it would not be exaggerated now to term the besieged. Hutter was inwardly much moved by the conduct of Hetty, though he affected so much indifference of manner. He recollected her gentle appeal to him before he left the ark and misfortune rendered that of weight which might have been forgotten amid the triumph of success. Then he knew the simple, single-hearted fidelity of his child, and understood why she had come, and the total disregard of self that reigned in all her acts. "'This is not well, Hetty,' he said, deprecating the consequences to the girl herself more than any other evil. "'These are fierce Iroquois, and are as little apt to forget an injury as a favor.' "'Tell me, father,' returned the girl, looking furtively about her, as if fearful of being overheard, "'did God let you do the cruel errand on which you came? 
I want much to know this, that I may speak to the Indians plainly, if he did not." "'You should not have come hither, Hetty. These brutes will not understand your nature or your intentions.' "'How was it, father? Neither you nor Hurry seems to have anything that looks like scalps.' "'If that will set your mind at peace, child, I can answer you, no. I had caught the young creature who came here with you, but her screeches soon brought down upon me a troop of the wild-cats. That was too much for any single Christian to withstand. If that will do you any good, we are as innocent of having taken a scalp this time, as I make no doubt we shall also be innocent of receiving the bounty. Thank God for that, father. Now I can speak boldly to the Iroquois, and with an easy conscience. I hope Hurry, too, has not been able to harm any of the Indians. Why, as to that matter, Hetty, returned the individual in question, you put it pretty much in the native character of the religious truth. Hurry has not been able, and that is the long and short of it. I've seen many squalls, old fellow, both on land and on the water, but never did I feel one as lively and as snappish as that which come down upon us night afore last, in the shape of an Indian hurrah-boys. Why, Hetty, you're no great matter at a reason or an idee that lies a little deeper than common. But you're human and have some human notions. Now I'll just ask you to look at them circumstances. Here was old Tom, your father, and myself, bent on a legal operation, as is to be seen in the words of the law and the proclamation, thinking no harm, when we were set upon by critters that were more like a pack of hungry wolves than mortal savages even. And there they had us tethered like two sheep in less time than it has taken me to tell you the story. "'You are free now, Hurry,' returned Hetty, glancing timidly at the fine unfettered limbs of the young giant. "'You have no cords or withes to pain your arms or legs now.' "'Not I, Hetty. Nature is nature, and freedom is nature, too. My limbs have a free look. But that's pretty much the amount of it, sin I can't use them in the way I should like. Even these trees have eyes, I and tongues, too. For was the old man here, or I, to start one single rod beyond our jail limits, Sarvis would be put on the bale afore we could gird up our loins for a race, and, like as not, four or five rifle-bullets would be travelling arter us, carrying so many invitations to curb our impatience. There isn't a jail in the colony as tight as this we are now in, for I've tried the virtues of two or three on em, and I know the materials they are made of, as well as the men that made em taken down being the next step in schoolin', to puttin' up in all such fabrications. Lest the reader should get an exaggerated opinion of Hurry's demerits from this boastful and indiscreet revelation, it may be well to say that his offences were confined to assaults and batteries, for several of which he had been imprisoned, when, as he has just said, he often escaped by demonstrating the flimsiness of the constructions in which he was confined by opening for himself doors in spots where the architects had neglected to place them. But Hetty had no knowledge of jails, and little of the nature of crimes, beyond what her unadulterated and almost instinctive perceptions of right and wrong taught her, and this sally of the rude being who had spoken was lost upon her. She understood his general meaning, however, and answered in reference to that alone. "'It's so best, Hurry,' she said. It is best father and you should be quiet and peaceable, till I have spoken to the Iroquois, when all will be well and happy. I don't wish either of you to follow, but leave me to myself. As soon as all is settled, 
and you are at liberty to go back to the castle, I will come and let you know it." Hetty spoke with so much simple earnestness, seemed so confident of success, and wore so high an air of moral feeling and truth, that both the listeners felt more disposed to attach an importance to her mediation than might otherwise have happened. When she manifested an intention to quit them, therefore, they offered no obstacle, though they saw she was about to join the group of chiefs who were consulting apart, seemingly on the manner and motive of her own sudden appearance. When Hist, for so we love best to call her, quitted her companion, she strayed near one or two of the elder warriors, who had shown her most kindness in her captivity, the principal man of whom had even offered to adopt her as his child if she would consent to become a Huron. In taking this direction the shrewd girl did so to invite inquiry. She was too well trained in the habits of her people to obtrude the opinions of one of her sex and years on men and warriors, but nature had furnished a tact and ingenuity that enabled her to attract the attention she desired, without wounding the pride of those to whom it was her duty to defer and respect. Even her affected indifference stimulated curiosity, and Hetty had hardly reached the side of her father before the Delaware girl was brought within the circle of the warriors, by a secret but significant gesture. Here she was questioned as to the person of her companion, and the motives that had brought her to the camp. This was all that Hist desired. She explained the manner in which she had detected the weakness of Hetty's reason, rather exaggerating than lessening the deficiency in her intellect, and then she related in general terms the object of the girl in venturing among her enemies. The effect was all that the speaker expected, her account investing the person and character of their visitor with a sacredness and respect that she well knew would prove her protection. As soon as her own purpose was attained, Hist withdrew to a distance, where, with female consideration and a sisterly tenderness, she set about the preparation of a meal, to be offered to her new friend as soon as the latter might be at liberty to partake of it. While thus occupied, however, the ready girl in no degree relaxed her watchfulness, noting every change of countenance among the chiefs, every movement of Hetty's, and the smallest occurrence that could be likely to affect her own interests, or that of her new friend. As Hetty approached the chiefs, they opened their little circle, with an ease and deference of manner that would have done credit to men of more courtly origin. A fallen tree lay near, and the oldest of the warriors made a quiet sign for the girl to be seated on it taking his place at her side with the gentleness of a father. The others arranged themselves around the two with grave dignity, and then the girl, who had sufficient observation to perceive that such a course was expected of her, began to reveal the object of her visit. The moment she opened her mouth to speak, however, the old chief gave a gentle sign for her to forbear, and said a few words to one of his juniors, and then waited in silent patience until the latter had summoned Hist to the party. This interruption proceeded from the chiefs having discovered that there existed a necessity for an interpreter, few of the Hurons present understanding the English language, and they but imperfectly. Watawa was not sorry to be called upon to be present at the interview, and least of all in the character in which she was now wanted. She was aware of the hazards she ran in attempting to deceive one or two of the party, but was none the less resolved to use every means that offered and to practice every artifice that an Indian education could supply, to conceal the facts of the vicinity of her betrothed, and of the errand on which he had come. 
one unpractised in the expedients and opinions of savage life, would not have suspected the readiness of invention, the wariness of action, the high resolution, the noble impulses, the deep self-devotion, and the feminine disregard of self when the affections were concerned, that lay concealed beneath the demure looks, the mild eyes, and the sunny smiles of this young Indian beauty. As she approached them, the grim old warriors regarded her with pleasure, for they had a secret pride in the hope of engrafting so rare a scion on the stock of their own nation, adoption being as regularly practiced, and as distinctly recognized among the tribes of America, as it ever had been among those nations that submit to the sway of the civil law. As soon as Hist was seated by the side of Hetty, the old chief desired her to ask the fair young pale-face what had brought her among the Iroquois, and what they could do to serve her. "'Tell them, Hist, who I am, Thomas Hutter's youngest daughter. Thomas Hutter, the oldest of their two prisoners. He who owns the castle and the ark, and who has the best right to be thought the owner of these hills, and that lake, since he has dwelt so long, and trapped so long, and fished so long among them. They'll know whom you mean by Thomas Hutter, if you tell them that. And then tell them that I've come here to convince them they ought not to harm father and hurry. But let them go in peace, and to treat them as brethren, rather than as enemies. Now tell them all this plainly, Hist, and fear nothing for yourself or me. God will protect us." Watawa did as the other desired, taking care to render the words of her friend as literally as possible into the Iroquois tongue, a language she used with a readiness almost equal to that with which she spoke her own. The chiefs heard this opening explanation with grave decorum, the two who had a little knowledge of English intimating their satisfaction with the interpreter by furtive but significant glances of the eyes. And now hissed continued Hetty, as soon as it was intimated to her that she might proceed. And now, Hist, I wish you to tell these red men, word for word, what I am about to say. Tell them, first, that Father and Hurry came here with an intention to take as many scalps as they could, for the wicked Governor and the Province have offered money for scalps, whether of warriors or women, men or children, and the love of gold was too strong for their hearts to withstand it. Tell them this, dear Hist, just as you have heard it from me, word for word." Wantawa hesitated about rendering this speech as literally as had been desired, but detecting the intelligence of those who understood English, and apprehending even a greater knowledge than they actually possessed, she found herself compelled to comply. Contrary to what a civilized man would have expected, the admission of the motives and of the errands of their prisoners produced no visible effect on either the countenances or the feelings of the listeners. They probably considered the act meritorious, and that which neither of them would have hesitated to perform in his own person, he would not be apt to censure in another. "'And now, Hist,' resumed Hetty, as soon as she perceived that her first speeches were understood by the chiefs, "'you can tell them more. They know that father and hurry did not succeed and therefore they can bear them no grudge for any harm that has been done. If they had slain their children and wives it would not alter the matter, and I am not certain that what I am about to tell them would not have more weight had there been mischief done. But ask them first, Hist, if they know there is a God who reigns over the whole earth, and is ruler and chief of all who live, let them be red or white, or what color they may. 
Watawa looked a little surprised at this question, for the idea of the great spirit is seldom long absent from the mind of an Indian girl. She put the question as literally as possible, however, and received a grave answer in the affirmative. "'This is right,' continued Hetty, "'and my duty will now be light. This great spirit, as you call our God, has caused a book to be written, that we call a Bible, and in this book have been set down all his commandments, and his holy will and pleasure, and the rules by which all men are to live, and directions how to govern the thoughts even, and the wishes, and the will. Here, this is one of these holy books, and you must tell the chiefs what I am about to read to them from its sacred pages." As Hetty concluded, she reverently unrolled a small English Bible from its envelope of coarse calico, treating the volume with the sort of external respect that a Romanist would be apt to show to a religious relic. As she slowly proceeded in her task, the grim warriors watched each movement with riveted eyes, and when they saw the little volume appear a slight expression of surprise escaped one or two of them. But Hetty held it out towards them in triumph, as if she expected the sight would produce a visible miracle, and then, without betraying either surprise or mortification at the stoicism of the Indian, she turned eagerly to her new friend in order to renew the discourse. "'This is the sacred volume, Hist,' she said, and these words, and lines, and verses, and chapters, all came from God." "'Why, great spirit, no send book to Injun, too?' demanded Hist, with the directness of a mind that was totally unsophisticated. "'Why?' answered Hetty, a little bewildered by a question so unexpected. "'Why? Ah! You know the Indians don't know how to read.' If Hist was not satisfied with this explanation, she did not deem the point of sufficient importance to be pressed. Simply bending her body in a gentle admission of the truth of what she heard, she sat patiently awaiting the further arguments of the pale-face enthusiast. You can tell these chiefs that throughout this book men are ordered to forgive their enemies, to treat them as they would brethren, and never to injure their fellow-creatures, more especially on account of revenge or any evil passions. Do you think you can tell them this, so that they will understand it, Hist?" "'Tell him well enough. But he no very easy to understand.' Hist then conveyed the ideas of Hetty, in the best manner she could, to the attentive Indians who heard her words with some such surprise as an American of our own times would be apt to betray at a suggestion that the great modern but vacillating ruler of things human, public opinion, might be wrong. One or two of their number, however, having met with missionaries, said a few words in explanation, and then the group gave all its attention to the communications that were to follow. Before Hetty resumed, she inquired earnestly of Hist if the chiefs had understood her and receiving an evasive answer, was fain to be satisfied. "'I will now read to the warriors some of the verses that it is good for them to know,' continued the girl, whose manner grew more solemn and earnest as she proceeded. "'And they will remember that they are the very words of the Great Spirit. First, then, ye are commanded to love thy neighbor as thyself. Tell them that, dear Hist.' "'Neighbor for Injun, no mean pale-face!' answered the Delaware girl, with more decision than she had hitherto thought it necessary to use. "'Neighbor mean Iroquois for Iroquois, Mohican for Mohican, pale-face for pale-face. No need tell chief anything else.' "'You forget,' hissed. These are the words of the Great Spirit, and the chiefs must obey them as well as others.' 
Here is another commandment. Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What that mean? demanded Hist, with the quickness of lightning. Hetty explained that it was in order not to resent injuries, but rather to submit to receive fresh wrongs from the offender. And hear this too, Hist, she added. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. By this time Hetty had become excited. Her eye gleamed with the earnestness of her feelings, her cheeks flushed, and her voice, usually so low and modulated, became stronger and more impressive. With the Bible she had been early made familiar by her mother, she now turned from passage to passage with surprising rapidity, taking care to cull such verses as taught the sublime lessons of Christian charity and Christian forgiveness. To translate half she said, in her pious earnestness, Watawa would have found impracticable, had she made the effort. But wonder held her tongue-tied, equally with the chiefs, and the young, simple-minded enthusiast had fairly become exhausted with her own efforts, before the other opened her mouth again to utter a syllable. Then, indeed, the Delaware girl gave a brief translation of the substance of what had been both read and said, confining herself to one or two of the more striking of the verses, those that had struck her own imagination as the most paradoxical, and which certainly would have been the most applicable to the case, could the uninstructed minds of the listeners embrace the great moral truths they conveyed. It will be scarcely necessary to tell the reader the effect that such novel duties would be likely to produce among a group of Indian warriors, with whom it was a species of religious principle never to forget a benefit, or to forgive an injury. Fortunately, the previous explanations of Hist had prepared the minds of the Hurons for something extravagant, and most of that which to them seemed inconsistent and paradoxical was accounted for by the fact that the speaker possessed a mind that was constituted differently from those of most of the human race. Still, there were one or two old men who had heard similar doctrines from the missionaries, and these felt a desire to occupy an idle moment by pursuing a subject that they found so curious. "'This is the good book of the pale-faces,' observed one of these chiefs, taking the volume from the unresisting hands of Hetty who gazed anxiously at his face while he turned the leaves, as if she expected to witness some visible results from the circumstance. This is the law by which my white brethren professes to live? Hist, to whom this question was addressed, if it might be considered as addressed to any one in particular, answered simply in the affirmative, adding that both the French of the Canadas and the Yengees of the British provinces equally admitted its authority, and affected to revere its principles. "'Tell my young sister,' said the Huron, looking directly at Hist, "'that I will open my mouth and say a few words.' "'The Iroquois chief go to speak. My pale-faced friend listen,' said Hist. "'I rejoice to hear it,' exclaimed Hetty. "'God has touched his heart, and he will now let father and hurry go.' "'This is the pale-face law,' resumed the chief. "'It tells him to do good to them that hurt him.' and when his brother asks him for his rifle to give him the powder-horn, too. Such is the pale-face law?" "'Not so, not so,' answered Hetty earnestly, when these words had been interpreted. "'There is not a word about rifles in the whole book, and powder and bullets give offence to the great spirit.' "'Why, then, does the pale-face use them? If he is ordered to give double to him that asks only for one thing, 
Why does he take double from the poor Indian who asked for no thing? He comes from beyond the rising sun, with this book in his hand, and he teaches the red man to read it. But why does he forget himself all it says? When the Indian gives, he is never satisfied. And now he offers gold for the scalps of our women and children, though he calls us beasts if we take the scalp of a warrior killed in open war. My name is Rivenoak. When Hetty had got this formidable question fairly presented to her mind in the translation, and Hist did her duty with more than usual readiness on this occasion, it scarcely need be said that she was sorely perplexed. Abler heads than that of this poor girl have frequently been puzzled by questions of a similar drift, and it is not surprising that with all her own earnestness and sincerity she did not know what answer to make. "'What shall I tell them, Hist?' she asked imploringly. I know that all I have read from the book is true, and yet it wouldn't seem so, would it, by the conduct of those to whom the book was given?" "'Give em pale-face reason,' returned Hist, ironically. "'That always good for one side, though be bad for t'other. No, no, Hist, there can't be two sides to truth. And yet it does seem strange. I'm certain I have read the verses right, and no one would be so wicked as to print the word of God wrong. That can never be, Hist. Well, to poor Injun girl, it seem everything can be to pale-faces," returned the other coolly. One time a say white, and one time a say black. Why never can be? Hetty was more and more embarrassed, until overcome with the apprehension that she had failed in her object, and that the lives of her father and Hurry would be the forfeit of some blunder of her own, she burst into tears. From that moment the manner of Hist lost all its irony and cool indifference, and she became the fond, caressing friend again. Throwing her arms around the afflicted girl, she attempted to soothe her sorrows by the scarcely ever failing remedy of female sympathy. "'Stop cry! No cry!' she said, wiping the tears from the face of Hetty, as she would have performed the same office for a child, and stopping to press her occasionally to her own warm bosom with the affection of a sister. "'Why are you so troubled?' You no make he book, if he be wrong, and you no make he pale-face, if he wicked. They're wicked red man, and wicked white man. No color all good, no color all wicked. Chiefs know that well enough." Hetty soon recovered from this sudden burst of grief, and then her mind reverted to the purpose of her visit, with all its single-hearted earnestness. Perceiving that the grim-looking chiefs were still standing around her in grave attention, she hoped that another effort to convince them of the right might be successful. "'Listen, Hist,' she said, struggling to suppress her sobs, and to speak distinctly. "'Tell the chiefs that it matters not what the wicked do. Right is right. The words of the Great Spirit are the words of the Great Spirit. And no one can go harmless for doing an evil act, because another has done it before him. Render good for evil, says this book, and that is the law for the red man as well as for the white man. Never hear such law among Delaware or among Iroquois, answered Hist soothingly. No good to tell chiefs any such laws as that. Tell them something they believe. Hist was about to proceed, notwithstanding, when a tap on the shoulder from the finger of the oldest chief caused her to look up. She then perceived that one of the warriors had left the group and was already returning to it with hutter and hurry. Understanding that the two last were to become parties in the inquiry, she became mute, 
with the unhesitating obedience of an Indian woman. In a few seconds the prisoners stood face to face with the principal men of the captors. "'Daughter,' said the senior chief to the young Delaware, "'ask this greybeard why he came into our camp.' The question was put by Hist, in her own imperfect English, but in a way that was easy to be understood. Hutter was too stern and obdurate by nature to shrink from the consequences of any of his acts, and he was also too familiar with the opinions of the savages not to understand that nothing was to be gained by equivocation or an unmanly dread of their anger. Without hesitating, therefore, he avowed the purpose with which he had landed, merely justifying it by the fact that the government of the province had bid high for scalps. This frank avowal was received by the Iroquois with evident satisfaction, not so much, however, on account of the advantage it gave them in a moral point of view, as by its proving that they had captured a man worthy of occupying their thoughts and of becoming a subject of their revenge. Hurry, when interrogated, confessed the truth, though he would have been more disposed to concealment than his sterner companion, did the circumstances very well admit of its adoption but he had tact enough to discover that equivocation would be useless at that moment, and he made a merit of necessity by imitating a frankness which in the case of Hutter was the offspring of habits of indifference acting on a disposition that was always ruthless, and reckless of personal consequences. As soon as the chiefs had received the answers to their questions, they walked away in silence, like men who deemed the matter disposed of all Hetty's dogmas being thrown away on beings trained in violence from infancy to manhood. Hetty and Hist were now left alone with Hutter and Hurry, no visible restraint being placed on the movements of either, though all four, in fact, were vigilantly and unceasingly watched. As respects the men, care was had to prevent them from getting possession of any of the rifles that lay scattered about, their own included, and where all open manifestations of watchfulness ceased. But they, who were so experienced in Indian practices, knew too well how great was the distance between appearances and reality, to become the dupes of this seeming carelessness. Although both thought incessantly of the means of escape, and this without concert, each was aware of the uselessness of attempting any project of the sort that was not deeply laid, and promptly executed. They had been long enough in the encampment, and were sufficiently observant to have ascertained that Hist, also, was a sort of captive, and presuming on the circumstance, Hutter spoke in her presence more openly than he might otherwise have thought it prudent to do, inducing Hurry to be equally unguarded by his example. "'I'll not blame you, Hetty, for coming on this errand, which was well meant if not very wisely planned,' commenced the father, seating himself by the side of his daughter, and taking her hand a sign of affection that this rude being was accustomed to manifest to this particular child. But preaching, and the Bible, are not the means to turn an Indian from his ways. Has Deerslayer sent any message, or has he any scheme by which he thinks to get us free?" "'Ay, that's the substance of it,' put in Hurry. "'If you can help us, gal, to half a mile of freedom, or even a good start of a short quarter, I'll answer for the rest. Perhaps the old man may want a little more but for one of my height and years that will meet all objections." Hetty looked distressed, turning her eyes from one to the other, but she had no answer to give the question of the reckless hurry. "'Father,' she said, "'neither Deerslayer nor Judith knew of my coming until I had left the Ark. 
They are afraid the Iroquois will make a raft and try to get off to the hut, and think more of defending that than of coming to aid you." "'No, no, no,' said Hist hurriedly, though in a low voice, and with her face bent towards the earth, in order to conceal from those whom she knew to be watching them the fact of her speaking at all. "'No, no, no. Deerslayer different man. He no tink of defending self, with friend in danger. Help one another, and all get to hut.' "'This sounds well, old Tom,' said Hurry, winking and laughing, though he too used the precaution to speak low. Give me a ready-witted squaw for a friend, and though I'll not downright defy an Iroquois, I think I would defy the devil." "'No talk loud,' said Hist. Some Iroquois got Yankee's tongue, and all got Yankee's ear." "'Have we a friend in you, young woman?' inquired Hutter, with an increasing interest in the conference. If so, you may calculate on a solid reward, and nothing will be easier than to send you to your own tribe, if we can once fairly get you off with us to the castle. Give us the ark and the canoes, and we can command the lake, spite of all the savages in the Canadas. Nothing but artillery could drive us out of the castle, if we can get back to it." "'Spose they come ashore to take scalp,' retorted Hist, with cool irony, at which the girl appeared to be more expert than is common for her sex. "'Ay, ay, that was a mistake. But there is little use in lamentations, and less still, young woman, in flings. Father, said Hetty, Judith thinks of breaking open the big chest, in hopes of finding something in that which may buy your freedom of the savages. A dark look came over Hutter at the announcement of this fact, and he muttered his dissatisfaction in a way to render it intelligible enough. What for no break open chest? put in Hist. Life sweeter than old chest, scalp sweeter than old chest. If no tell darter to break him open, Watawa no help him to run away. Ye know not what ye ask. Ye are but silly girls, and the wisest way for ye both is to speak of what ye understand, and to speak of nothing else. I little like this cold neglect of the savages, Hurry. It's a proof that they think of something serious, and if we are to do anything we must do it soon. Can we count on this young woman, think you?" Listen, said Hist quickly, and with an earnestness that proved how much her feelings were concerned. Watawa no Iroquois all over Delaware, got Delaware heart, Delaware feeling. She prisoner, too. One prisoner helped other prisoner. No good to talk more now. Darter stay with fader, Watawa come and see friend. All look right. Then tell what he do." This was said in a low voice, but distinctly, and in a manner to make an impression. As soon as it was uttered the girl arose and left the group, walking composedly towards the hut she occupied as if she had no further interest in what might pass between the pale-faces. End of chapter 11 Recording by Bill Borst